0: So I used to write President Clinton's White House correspondence Dinner speeches and gridiron dinners and all those things you see on C-SPAN once a year. And I did that for eight years. It's this, it's this exercise where you're basically lending someone your, your sense of humor and your sensibility, and my humor is Jewish humor. I mean, it's, you know, I've, I was reared on I lu- grew up listening to Mel Brooks' albums. So I wrote a joke once basically giving the time of great moments in the history of political media. That is going, you know, through, through the 20th century. And one of them says 1960. In 1960, people who watched the Kennedy-Nixon debates on television thought that Kennedy won. People who listened to the debates on radio thought, "It's 1960. When the hell am I going to get a television set already?" <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was a funny joke, and I put it in the speech. We rehearse. It's such it's such a Yiddish joke. Totally that we rehearsed it for half an hour he couldn't get he's a southern baptist we couldn't get these words out of his mouth correctly (laughs) because you just you just they didn't sound right no no. but he actually did the joke oh he Um, did he did do the joke and it sounded okay but i I kind of taught him yiddish yiddishisms that day
1: nice nice hey yum's the word haven't you heard the yum's the word it was started by a bird. My name is Robin. And her hair has lots of curls. Actually I blow it out a lot. Stories, some like wetting the bed next to your boyfriend. Pretty funny and absurd. Like your boss tickling your side boob. So Welcome all you nerds. and cool people too. This is for everyone except kids. Yums the word. Hey everybody, welcome to Yom's the Word. I'm Robin Gelfenbein, and at the top you heard Mark Katz, who just appeared on our Yom's the Word, a Night of Jewish Storytellers show, which was the day after Yom Kippur. Now, all month, we've been featuring different Yiddish words on our social media, including people like my sisters, my family, auntie, of course, my rabbi, of uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, who is a huge social media influencer and an incredibly generous person, and so many more. Now, I have to say, some of the words were brand new to me, like a uh, miskeit, chunyuk, and oddly enough, a whole bunch of words that describe Donald Trump to a T. You know, like schmuck, schmandrick, schmagegi, You get the picture. You can check out all of these really fun videos, I call them yidvids, on our Instagram at yumsthewordshow. Okay, since Mark Katz used to write for Bill Clinton, and we've got an election coming up, very soon, as you may have heard, we decided to dedicate this episode to some very fun and funny stories about other presidential and presidential-adjacent moments. First up is Mark Katz. Mark, as he mentioned at the top, is an ex-White House speechwriter who worked during the Clinton administration. His stories have been featured on the Moth Radio Hour, the Moth Podcast, and the Liar Show. This is his story about another presidential run-in he had back in the 90s.
0: Uh, the story I want to tell takes place in 1994. You all are very young. Raise your hand if you remember 1994. Okay. Okay that's, a good, okay, that's a good sign. So, it's a rainy October morning in 1994. I'm in my apartment on the Upper West Side, and the phone rings. It's my friend, Mitch, who was one of my best friends from growing up in high school, and now he's an assistant district attorney in Manhattan. And he says, uh, a bunch of friends of mine are, from work are going out to play touch football on Central Park if you want to come with, you want to come join. Now, Mitch knows my athletic interests and abilities better than most. We grew up, a bunch of guys, every day after school, we would play um, uh, basketball on our on driveways. Three, ga- three on three, I used to call it Jew ball, which basically consists of a lot of outside shooting, passing. Um, nobody has the ability to dribble with their left hand, even, <laughs> even left handers. Um, never any fights, only threats of lawsuits. And it was common knowledge among my friends that you did not, on those rare occasions we played touch football, it was common knowledge you did not want me on your team. I can't catch a football, I can't throw a football, I have no football skills whatsoever. So why on earth, years later, I'm 30 years old now, would my friend Mitch be calling me up to go play football in Central Park on a cold, rainy Saturday? He had yet to tell me the one detail I thought I'd be interested in. My friend John is supposed to show. He knew that I know who he meant. John John Kennedy had loomed large in my life from my very earliest days, in fact even before I was born. I was born in December of 63, 5 weeks after that terrible day in Dallas. And my the whole country, you know, was an outpouring of fixation with all things Kennedy and my mother was uh, uh, fixated more than most and she looked down five weeks into the Johnson administration when I was born and she saw her own living crying pooping John John doll and she set out to kind of make me in his image out of a, a Camelot catalog now she had you know, To be fair, you know a lot of people were interested in the Kennedy when he got elected president, and she, starting around 1960, started showing up in the Jewish uh, Fashion Week that are the high holidays in pillbox caps, ca- hats, and bouffant hairstyle, and Oleg, Nassidi, Oleg Cassini knockoffs. And she was young and slender and pretty and carried off better than most. And then she turned her attention to my dad, a short, a, a short but sturdy round-faced dentist and set to remake him as kind of a toothy, uh, chiseled Kennedy, which totally didn't work. <laughs> but then when I was born, she really started to fixate on me. She wanted to turn me into her own little John John doll. And it started with the clothing. Um, my grandfather, or her father, owned a children's clothing store in Cheapside Bay on Avenue U. My grandfather, my father's side, was a tailor. So working together, they could take the latest fashions and, and tailor them just to me. So I'm wearing purple vests and with crests. I'm wearing silk, uh, silk uh, shorts with matching suspenders. I am soiling some of the finest clothing in the world since, since the Sun King was a toddler. And, uh, but then, the the real, the, from the clothing, it went to, the, the, the most lasting effect happened when it was time for my first haircut. I'm about one year old, I guess, or it's one and a half, and she takes me to the shopping plaza near us, to the Italian barber with the red stripe pole, and explains to him that she wants me to have a John John haircut. Which, and she brought all kinds of pictures, she, from Look and Life magazine. John John haircut was kind of like a modified Beatles mop top for kids. Not unlike this. And, uh, uh, and the barber picks up his electric buzzer and gives the only haircut he knows how to give, which is a buzz cut. And she takes me out of the chair, puts me back into the station wagon, and we drive home. We stop off at the pharmacy where she picks up a pair of scissors stainless steel with a little cute little cute thing on the side, professional grade barber sitters, barber si- scissors. <laughs> and this was a day that I received my first mom-administered haircut. Now this perfectly cute story turns tragic as my <laughs> mother progresses along the learning curve of a self-taught haircutter. And we have, I have two brothers and a sister and soon all four of us are getting our hair cut by our mother, and she had amassed an arsenal of scissors and sinning shears and tonics and aprons and everything—the stuff that the stuff that the state requires you to have a license to use upon the general public—and yet uh, she's using it on us, uh, you know, without any without any regulations uh, overseeing her. So. Um, what happens next? <laughs> so, uh, oh, so the worst part of this so is, I guess, it's, I mean, it's not a terrible thing to have your mother cut your hair. It was just an unusual thing to happen this far from Appalachia. So there was just a sense of shame that went along with it. And the worst part about it was not the actual haircut, but it was the day after when I had to go to school. And some... Moron on the bus or in the hallway would always yells out, "Cat's got a haircut! Cat's got a haircut!" I was always petrified, petrified, that somehow the conversation would turn from the cats, from the the, uh, the fact that cats got a haircut, to where cats got his haircut and who was cutting cats' hair. Well, anyway, most of these psychic scarring healed by the time I hit adulthood, and well, most, not all. So, so now I'm on my way, I'm 30 years old, and I'm on my way to go play touch football in the park uh, with my friends and, and John. So I'm approaching Central Park, Sheep Meadow, and I see a bunch of guys tossing the ball around. And one, and one of them, with the backward Jets cat, is John John Kennedy. I'm about to play touch football with John John, and I can just about smell the chowder. So I approach, and we all introduce ourselves, we all pretend John's just another guy like all the other Steve and Mike and Daves. And we split up teams, and I'm on, I'm on the John team, and Mitch, my friend, is on the other not John team. <laughs> and John's the quarterback of our team. And I quietly assign myself the task of not being an obvious detriment to our team, which is going to be tough for me. So I'm on the line of scrimmage and uh, and uh, trying to defend him. And I see, I see in the corner of my eye, I see a bunch of photographers with long lenses taking pictures, they, they staked out John. And I'm very mindful of the fact that In the huddle, I'm standing close to John, looking at him intently, mindful of the fact that I could wind up in the next day's daily news. And I can see this confused John, because I'm paying such close and eager attention in the huddle, and yet I am so clueless and useless once the ball is snapped. (laughs) So uh, the other team quickly figures out that I'm the weak link on our offensive line and they keep on assigning bigger and faster guys against me and they go right past me and they sack our quarterback four or five times. So I'm reassigned out of necessity to be one of the uh, uh, wide receivers, one well, two or three eligible wide receivers. So I line up on, on the line and uh, I don't try too hard to get free from my defender because I know I can't catch the ball and John doesn't has no choice but to not throw it to me and he seems happy to do so. And we're down by one touchdown and I'm lined up on the line and this time the guy defending me slips on the wet grass and I start running down the field and I'm running and John sees me and I'm running and I'm running and he he pumps once and pumps twice and I'm standing in the egg zone and he throws it to me. It's a great pass. It's a tight spiral coming right at me couldn't be more at me, hits me right in the chest <laughs> like a pre-cordial thump, goes up in the air, flips around, giving me the opportunity to miss the same ball twice, <laughs> which I do. We lose the game. There's no way I'm gonna be invited to Hyannisport now. So after the game, which we lost, we were all, the, you know, all the guys are leaving Central Park, and uh, I work my way to the middle of these rainy, sweat, you know, rainy, sweaty guys huddled around John as we're walking back to the west side. And I kind of forced my way into the conversation and, and launch, apropos of nothing, say to him something I had to say to him. I had to tell him that, my, that once upon a time my mother used to give me haircuts so I could look like him. And for that reason, I had a childhood of home haircuts. And he, he takes me in for the first time, really. And he'd, you know, it hurt a lot of people. A lot of strangers would come up to him and talk to him. And he was used to it. And he was raised well. And he listened to me. And then he looks at me and he says, Does, does your mom still cut your hair? And I said, no, no, she doesn't. And he said, good for you. Thank you very much.
1: That was Mark Katz. You can find Mark on Twitter at Mark Katz. That's M-A-R-K, Katz. And you can find a picture of his John John haircut on our Instagram at Yums the Word Show. Actually, the night that he was on the show, we did a Yiddish quiz with all of the storytellers. I asked each of them what their favorite Yiddish word is, and this is Marx. So, Mark, what is your favorite Yiddish word?
0: Well, the, the phrase that comes to mind is "tuches aventish." Tuches aventish? Yes. Anyone know tuches? I know aventish? something
1: about your butt. Uh,
0: it means "tushy on the table." It like, means it means to speak frankly. Oh. So I've actually one. used this as a device in meetings where I'll say, let's talk to in, in important meetings with CEOs or whomever and I'll say, let's talk to and then <laughs> now we're in a conversation about Tukus Aventish, which always kinda of changes the mood. So and then we have a frank conversation after that.
1: Hey. Feel free to use that at your next job interview, the next time you ask your boss for a raise, or, you know, your next Tinder date. Tukus Love it. That's a good one, don't you think, Alex? Yeah, you know, sometimes you just got to put your butt on the table. Yeah, there's no two ways about it. Uh, Or there's no two ways about it Okay, up next is an incredibly important person In the storytelling community The one and only Kevin Allison Kevin was a member of the legendary sketch comedy troupe The State that ran on MTV back in the 90s He's recently been featured on HBO's High Maintenance And he is the host and creator of the live storytelling show And podcast Risk This is his story about running for class president Against a very unlikely opponent
2: yes i was going to say that uh, you know oddly enough tonight there is i have maybe the least amount of penis in my story (laughs) very uh, but that's because this predates all of that this starts at recess in the first grade (laughs) it's indoor recess And there's about 50 kids running around, throwing balls back and forth, and I am just looking at all the dinosaurs painted on the walls and kind of loving them, and I'm kind of wedged away in a corner, having a conversation with an imaginary friend. (laughs) And it occurred to me as I was coming here tonight, I was like, wow, If I was with my therapist right now, we could just stop right there. We could just spend the next hour on the fact that all the kids are playing with one another. I'm talking to someone who doesn't exist in the corner says a lot about me to this day. But a little kid comes up to me, this kid who looked a little bit like a first grade version of Paul McCartney. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, uh, I'm talking to my friend. He said, who? I said, oh, it's it's my friend Henry. He's like, well, what is he? I was like, actually, he's a piano. (laughs) And the two of us instantly thought that was the funniest damn thing ever. We're like, what? You're talking to an imaginary piano? (laughs) So we laughed and laughed, and we were just instantly the best of friends. And we got, you know how things evolve with jokes? We suddenly started calling each other Henry instead of the piano. And soon enough, we were known to be the best of friends in the first grade, so we decided, wait a minute, we have got to start the Henry Club. If you want to be friends with Henry and Henry, you have to be in the hierarchy. You can be a three-quarters Henry, or a half Henry, or a one-quarter Henry, or a pineapple. I don't know what that meant. But the people who were pineapples felt it was a very demoralizing position. (laughs) So we just went on being the best of friends right up through all of grade school. We became the kind of guys who would like hang out all night as we got kind of older and would talk about things like, you know, what is God? I think it's more of a verb than a noun. You know, those kind of conversations that you have. (laughs) We would listen to Jesus Christ Superstar and Fiddler on the Roof. And when Indiana Jones came out, we would run around the backyard acting like we were on horses together. So we were truly like soulmates. We were really best friends. But the movie E.T. ruined all that. In 1982, I was 12 years old, and you see, there is something I had not told Henry. There is something I had not told anyone, anyone in my life, my entire life. It was my big, big secret. I knew it even when I was that little kid praying in the photograph there. And that is, I knew, when I was five years old, I saw the butt of the boy next door. And I realized, oh, no, I like boys' butts. (laughs) It was a very, very visceral and very conscious thought. It was like right there. I had heard the kids in the neighborhood use the words gay and fag, and it had been explained to me that those words meant two things. One, they meant horribly lame and defective and awful and laughable and loathsome and A Boy Who Likes Boys. And essentially, they're synonymous. So I knew, even at five, oh my God, I am both of those things. It was a terrifying thing to grow up knowing. I was raised in a very, very Catholic and Cincinnati is very, very Republican uh, environment. So I grew up very terrified and was not sure if I could ever tell anyone this. And if I thought, if there's anyone that maybe, maybe someday I might be able to tell, it was Henry, right? Then the movie E.T. came out. And you see, I had been trying to deny this to myself for years and years. At 11, at age 11, I came up with a plan. I was like, look, maybe if I talk about this in church, if, if I talk about, you know, not say the word gay or fag or anything like that, but kind of like wedge my way into it in a confession booth with a priest, maybe he can like talk it out of me. In retrospect now that all we know about the Catholic church and that sort of thing. I'm so glad I didn't take that tactic. <laughs> in a tiny little room with a priest. Uh, So I didn't. I didn't go to confession, but I couldn't quite say it out loud to myself. And then E.T. came out. And I sat there watching this movie. And if you don't... Now, E.T. is not officially a movie about romantic love. But it sure was to me because I fell in love with this kid, Elliot, the lead boy in the movie, was right about my age at that time, and something about him just struck me so palpably. If you remember, in the beginning of the movie, he is desperate for a best friend. He doesn't have any friends. They're kind of, I think, new in the neighborhood or something like that, and his father has died, so he doesn't really have a a male figure, and he just wants a best friend. He just kind of feels out of place. And then he finds this best friend, who is, of course, a strange brown thing from outer space, and they develop this soulmate thing, and I just found myself kind of romantically tied up And, 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 like identifying with the brown thing, right? So at the end of the movie, when they're splitting up, I was just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing like much more than anyone else in the theater because I don't know. I just felt like this was a love story that only I got on some level. (laughs) So the very next day, I had my E.T. novelization, right? And I'm reading it in the backyard, and I realize that I come to this point where I'm just so overwhelmed by this description of the guy, Elliot, in the movie that I just had to close the book, and I said out loud to myself, that's it. I am gay. I said it out loud to myself. Now... About a month or so later, there was this incident where there was a water fight in my, in my backyard with me and the boys next door and everything, and we had to go down in the, in the basement and take all our clothes off, and there was some truth or dare, and show me yours, I'll show you mine, and yada, yada. And it was just you know kind of innocent, what kids do, but, it, but I thought it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and so there came a day where Henry and I were swimming in the swimming pool across the street from his house, his neighbor's swimming pool. And I found myself, like, without really thinking it through, telling him about how fun this thing was with the what had happened with, you know, the truth or dare with the kids next door. And he kind of reacted like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then I felt like, oh, I I really have kind of... Open the door just a little bit here. I I have kind of left it ajar just a little bit, haven't I? And and I felt like I don't know. Let's just let's just do this. Let's just get this over with. And and the movie E.T. came up because uh, he had just seen it again. And I said, you know, when I saw E.T., I think I I felt differently about that movie than a lot of people did. And he was like, huh. And I said, well, I I think that the boy, Elliot, in the movie, I think I felt differently about him. And it was just such a loaded moment. Because he knew what I was saying. I hadn't really said it, but he knew what I was saying. And there was just this awkward silence between us. We're about ten feet away from each other in the pool... He starts to get out of the pool. And as he's walking away, he just says, kind of like under his breath in my direction, You're sick. And I get out of the pool. And we kind of like silently walk down the hill toward where our bikes are. And I'm kind of drying off. And we really don't say anything to each other. The day is over. And... And I just kind of, like, go on my way. And then the next Monday at school, we're on the playground, and I noticed that he keeps picking on me, right? He keeps, like, pointing out ways that I'm wrong about this and I'm wrong about that, and I said such and such. And it came to the point where we were in health class. This is a seventh grade. We were in health class, and I said something on the playground about pelvises. I said... <laughs> only boys have pelvises Uh, and he was like no that is not true the pelvis is a part of everybody's skeleton and I was like oh well you're so perfect and he was like oh I'm perfect I'm so perfect he said maybe you would know a little bit more about girls having pelvises if you weren't so focused on the boys next door And at that point, I just kind of whipped around, and and I was just kind of blind in in, in kind of a fury and and just emotion, and I said the only thing I could think to say in that moment, which was, Bitch! (laughs) And I kind of instantly knew, Oh, gosh, even that was really gay. (laughs) But he walked away from me on the playground. And when we lined up, we we would order a single file line back into school. He he was nowhere near me. We were usually right next to each other. And I knew that we were no longer talking to each other. And pretty soon, all of St. Catherine's grade school knew that the Henry's were not talking to each other. Because over the years, we had become two of the most popular kids in school. Like the Henry Club. (laughs) was quite quite a an organization at that point people needed to choose sides and it was really really tense for a lot of our friends and even some of our teachers our teachers were concerned like oh gosh these two aren't friends anymore so it was really really harsh I have so many journal entries about it and there was a lot of for our friendship there was a lot of looking at each other and trying not to look at each other and you know making jokes and realizing oh that's a joke that I would make with him ordinarily it doesn't go over so well when there's not someone to join in you know so it was really painful and it lasted for a year and a half now At the end of seventh grade, it was time for student council to run for president, right? And so awkwardly enough, amazingly enough, only two people end up signing up to run for student council president, both of us. (laughs) So it's kind of like Henry versus Henry. It's this showdown, and we both find out at the same time, oh, no, go great, now we're up against each other. Well, I'll tell you what, stickers started showing up, these little white handwritten stickers would find their way onto desks or on walls next to desks or under chairs that, would, that were saying, Kevin Allison is a bisexual. I think he was just hedging his bets. <laughs> but it was a smear campaign, right? I was being swift But you know What? I had so much enthusiasm and was going after the student council thing in such a, oh, I don't know, such a rah-rah sort of way. When it came time, the big day for the big speeches in front of everybody, which is kind of like debates of sorts, He got up and gave his big speech, and it was really impressive. It was really smart, really political. It was very effective. It was like, I guess, a Hillary Clinton kind of speech of, oh, my gosh, yeah, he could really get some things done. And I got up, and I decided, well, I don't have the same sort of substance as him, so I'm going to go for some gusto here. I'm going to do something really colorful. So I got up there. And there was this phrase that everyone got the hugest kick out of in whatever that was, whatever year that was. Seventh grade was about 1982, right? I got up and I said, When I say cool, you say beans. Cool! Beans! Cool! Beans! And I just did that for a little while and then left. I won that thing in a landslide. (laughs) I had apparently put my finger on the Cool Beans zeitgeist of 1982. But I'll tell you, the next year, eighth grade, it was just eating at us more and more. And it was awkward because it was a small school. So they'd keep putting us in these groups that would have to go on field trips together or stuff like that where, you know we would find that we would make jokes deliberately that we knew only the other one would get. You know, we, you could tell that we both kind of wanted... It was kind of like, you know, like Sam and Diane on Cheers where you're waiting, at, you know, season after. Say, okay, when are they finally going to get together? That's what the ending of this enemy ship was like for the two of us. So finally, a day came toward the very end of eighth grade where I handed out awards to everyone. I just took it upon myself to give everyone in the eighth grade an award for something. And it was just a big list that everyone got on mimeographed paper. And for Henry, it was best guy who is actually a pretty good guy, but probably maybe wouldn't even want to be receiving an award from someone like me. (laughs) So finally, the day came where I think enough of my parents and my friends had just been saying, this is kind of tired. This is kind of old. You know, like, why don't you just push past this? Like, you guys are good guys. And so I was creating a radio drama. Even back then, I used to do these things with my little Radio Shack tape recorder. I was making a a, a horror comedy called I Was a Teenage Doorknob. (laughs) (laughs) It was a radio drama where people are being attacked by giant, monstrous doorknobs. And I needed a final number in the whole piece. It was about a half-hour-long thing, and it was going to end with a song uh, based on the tune of Oklahoma. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, my God, my old friend who used to listen to musicals with me would be such a help on putting this song together. So I actually picked up the phone, and when he answered, I said, uh... Well, I actually called him Bob. I called him his real name, you know? And, like, like, let's not get carried away here with the intimacy. So I said, hey, Bob. (laughs) It was, like, the first time I'd called him that uh, ever. And I said, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, making this funny radio thing with the tape recorder. And uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, you could come over with some of the other guys if you want, I guess. (laughs) And he did. He came on over. And so that afternoon, there we were, singing and laughing and doing what we, what we were doing on the very first day we ever met. Just inventing crazy stuff and laughing with each other again. And there was a lot to talk about. But for that day, it was just laughing together again. And so what we had called the darkness <laughs> was over and we never looked back thank you
1: that was kevin allison you can find kevin on twitter at the kevin allison that's allison with an i and at risk show and you can see his live show the last wednesday of every month at the bell house in brooklyn so be sure to check that out okay now if you've been coming to our show or listening to our podcast and thought I could tell a story. Well, now is your chance. We are offering storytelling workshops for work and for fun. It is a great skill to have to be a better public speaker, to sell an idea through, to connect with coworkers and others, and to, you know, just entertain people. It's open to all levels and it's called Storytelling Fun 01. You can learn all about it on our website at yumsthewordshow.com slash workshops. Also, our next live show is Thursday, November 10th at La Poisson Rouge. Since we just did Yom's the Word, a night of Jewish storytellers, we're going to do Shiksa's and Goys. We have got an unbelievable lineup. I'm so excited. We've got Naomi Ekparrigan, who recently recorded her own Comedy Central half-hour special. She's also a writer for Broad City, Gastor Elmont. Uh, who was recently on Comedy Central's This Is Not Happening, Danny Ortiz, who's a three-time Moth the Story Slam winner, and one more to be announced. And, of course, we will be testing their Yiddish knowledge that night as well. You can get tickets for that show and details at yumsthewordshow.com. Hope to see you there, and if you can't make it, be sure to follow all the fun the night of the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat at yumsthewordshow. The stories you just heard were recorded live at La Poisson Rouge in New York City. The podcast is produced by me, Robin Gelfenbein, and Alex Fulton, who wrote some of the music. And the theme song is by Mark Radcliffe. Special thanks to Matt Fiddler, Michael Cedar, Danny Ortiz, Megan Deneen, Robbie Matz, and Carly Patron. I'm Robin Gelfenbein. Thanks for listening. Hope you get a piece. And until next time.
2: Yes, I was going to say that, uh, you know, oddly enough, tonight I have maybe the least amount of penis in my story. Yum's
1: the word.